This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. If you'd open up your Bibles to John chapter 12, John chapter 12. Been out the last couple of weeks, so it's great to be back with you. And I'm uh, thankful for Rob and Pete and their teaching of God's Word and leading us through John. And uh, didn't miss a beat. And we're just picking up at the very next section of Scripture, um, which is John 12, 12 is where I'm going to start today. I'm going to read through verse 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, and we thank you most of all for what it reveals to us about the Lord Jesus. And that's really my prayer this morning, Father. We, Our minds could go in many directions, but I pray that our minds would be directed to this passage and to you, Lord Jesus, to who you are and to what you're like. Lord, we confess, whether we're having a terrible day or a great day, what we need most today is a fresh understanding and appreciation and vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and his reign. So God, we ask you in the minutes we have, would you open our ears and open our eyes and show us yourself in power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're focusing on a shorter passage of Scripture today. Sometimes we've gone like 50 verses at a time, and today we're only covering seven. And uh, that's not because I had a week with a lot going on and didn't have much time to devote to this. That's true, but that's not the reason that we're doing seven verses today. Uh, we're doing seven verses today because this is an unusual event that really stands on its own. Um, it's one of the few events... That, that we've read of in the, in the Gospel of John. It's one of the few events that appears in all four Gospels. This is in all four of the Gospels. And not only that, of all the stuff we've read in John, this is, this is the only event that today on the church calendar gets its own Sunday. Now, Friday gets Good Friday and Easter Sunday gets Easter Sunday, but this is Palm Sunday is what we're reading about right now. Palm Sunday is the week before Easter. And so it's a significant in the, in church history and on the church calendar, this event that we just read about 
really stands on its own as a unique event. And it's unique because um, it gives a picture of Jesus as the king. So we've had glimpses of King Jesus in, in the Gospel of John, but this is the most definitive statement of the kingship of Jesus and of the nature of what it means to say Jesus is a king. So it's a picture of his kingship. And what happens in this passage is that as we, as we think about what happens, most of us, if you're new to the Bible, you may not know, but if you're familiar a little bit with the Bible, you'll know what happens after this, that ultimately Jesus is crucified and, and following that he's resurrected. This is the last week of Jesus's life. So the rest of the gospel of John covers one week. So the rest of the passage is about this week. So if we go further in this week, we see what kind of king that Jesus really is. You say, here we see a revelation that Jesus is a humble servant king. But he's a humble servant king who will liberate people in an unexpected way. That's what I want to focus on here. Jesus comes to bring freedom and liberation, but he comes to bring it in a way that was unexpected for these who are gathered here this day in Jerusalem. He's going to do it by dying and rising again. This is quite a scene. What's happening here is this is Passover. Um, Verse 1 of chapter 12 says six days before the Passover, and so we're still just right before the Passover. And verse 12, the next day, probably what's in view there is Sunday, the week before, the Sunday before Jesus' death. And there's a huge crowd gathered. Passover is one of the three major feasts where, you know, all of Israel, or a large part of Israel, would gather in Jerusalem to worship. Now, there are various estimates of how many people are at this event, and they're so varied that I don't, I don't really know what the number was. I read one scholar who says at this time, there's probably a million people there. I read someone else who said there was, you know, upwards of 2.5 million. So he probably led an evangelistic campaign or something. I don't know where he got that number, but he says 2.5 million. Somebody says 1 million. So I'm going to be conservative and say there's a million people gathered about in Jerusalem at this time. And what's happening is large crowds, certainly not all million of them, but many people are aware of Jesus and what he has done. And specifically what he's done is he has just recently raised a man from the dead. Jesus spoke into a tomb and Lazarus came out uh, alive. Look at verse 17 in this passage. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for Passover, and there is a buzz, there is a frenzy. People hear Jesus has raised someone from the dead, and there are credible witnesses that there are people who not just heard someone say that it happened, there are people walking around that saw it happen. And Lazarus is alive, by the way. He's a witness himself. And so people are very excited about what has happened. And people are going out to see Jesus who has done this, this credible miracle. And, and what is happening is the people are drawing a conclusion. I'm going to tell you the conclusion, then I'm going to sort of demonstrate it in the Scripture. But the people are drawing a conclusion. And the conclusion they're drawing is that Jesus is the King. 
Jesus is the Messiah. The people of Israel have anticipated and have waited for Jesus to, for not Jesus, but for a ruler to come. And they're drawing the conclusion that Jesus is the one that they have rated for. Jesus is the one sent by God, the King of Israel, the Messiah, the one who will bring freedom to Israel. Israel is under Roman rule, but this king, like David the king of years ago, will come and bring freedom. That is their hope. And that's demonstrated by their words and by their actions. Look at their actions, verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. They took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, and they're crying out certain things. Now, here's the thing about the palm branches, the palm leaf, the branch and the leaf. The palm was a national symbol of Israel. And as far as I understand it, the palm, it wasn't just that they needed something to wave, you know, it's hot and we're going to fan ourselves, or, you know, that's the way, like, we clap, they wave leaves. It's not like that. That's not what's going on. The palm was a national symbol of Israel, and the closest thing I can think of is that it would be like us waving a flag, it's that kind of a thing. The, the, the palm was on their coins. It was their symbol. Um, and the, it was not only a symbol of Israel, but it was a symbol of political, military victory. A few weeks ago, we said that Jesus was at the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah, and we talked about what that meant. Well, what that meant, if you'll recall, was the Syrians had ruled Israel about 150 years prior to Jesus, and um, and the people of God, Israel, overthrew the Syrians and got their temple back. The Syrians had desecrated their temple, and they got their temple back, and when they dedicated their temple, it was called the Feast of Dedication. Well, when Simon, um, who was a Maccabee, family of the Maccabees, when Simon delivered Israel and defeated Syria, the people responded by waving palm leaves. It became a sign of military victory. It was like a flag being waved when you've won a war. And so when they go out and wave palm branches, they are saying something. They are saying, this is the king who is coming to bring national Israel victory. They're expecting Jesus to come and bring a military victory. Look what they say. So they they took the branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him, crying out, verse 13, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This comes from Psalm 118. The word Hosanna uh, in Psalm 118 is translated, save us. Some people say, well, maybe the most specific way we could define it would be to say it means give salvation now. So the people are coming out and they're yelling to Jesus, save us, bring us salvation, rescue us, deliver us, liberate us. That's what they're saying. That they're not thinking of praying a sinner's prayer and having their sins forgiven. They're waving the national sign of Israel because they're asking him to save them from Rome. Give us freedom is what they're praying to him. And then it says, the next part of the verse is, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. So you're blessed. You're coming sent from God, the king, come to rescue us. And then they say this, even the king of Israel. So it's very clear in the text. The king has come. And we pray that you as a king, like David did, would lead us into battle, would deliver us, would give us political 
freedom. So there's this excitement, there's this frenzy, they're cheering, they're welcoming him. Um, the Messiah has come, he's going to set the captives free. How do we know it's him? He's raising dead people. God has got to, I mean, if you're raising the dead, you've got to be the one we've expected. We didn't know exactly who the king would be, but when you call someone out of a tomb, that's pretty good credentials. And so we think you may be of God. And so we're gathering, we're coming, we're, we're going after, after you. And matter of fact, the Pharisees' enemies, look what they say. Verse 19, look, the world has gone after him. Even his enemies are saying, this is huge. This is really big. And everybody is excited to welcome the Deliverer, but what we're going to see in this passage and as we go further in the Gospel is Jesus is not the kind of king that they expect. Jesus does not have the kind of mission that they're excited about. They're all cheering and thrilled for a person who isn't going to act like they anticipate. In fact, they've placed their hopes, their desires on Jesus. They have scripted, and we'll see this, they have scripted what God should do for them. They've made conclusions about the mission of Jesus. They've made conclusions about God's will for Jesus and for them. I mean, what kind of king is he really? Well, look what kind of king he is. It says that, verse 14, he found a young donkey and sat on it and came in on a donkey. He's a humble king. Listen, if you're coming in to overthrow the Roman government militarily, as they're hoping and expecting, if you're coming in, you'd come in in regal force. You'd come in with threatening power. Listen, in war, when you want to, when you want to demonstrate threat, it's not get the donkeys. Whoa. Everybody's, oh, they're coming on donkeys. Whoa. What are we going to do? They would laugh if you come riding in in power on donkeys. I mean, when the president of the United States is in his motorcade riding to the inauguration to be you know, coronated as, well, we don't have a king, but you know what I'm saying, that he's being set in as president of the U.S. There's dignity, there's force, there's pomp and circumstance and power. A donkey is a beast of burden. What you think of a donkey, that's what they thought as well. A, a, a donkey is a, it's a work animal. It's a beast of burden. It's not impressive. It's not strong. It's dumb. It's a donkey. He comes in in humility. It's interesting, they give us a verse here. Look at verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey. That is Zechariah 9.9. In Zechariah 9.9, it's prophesied, daughter of Zion is a phrase of Jerusalem. Don't be afraid, Jerusalem. Your king is coming, and your king is coming on a donkey. So this is prophesied. Now, if we go a little bit further, the next two verses in Zechariah are very revealing. Because this says, when the king comes, he'll come on a donkey. Look at what the next two verses will display those for you. Look at what the next two verses say. Verses 10 and 11 of Zechariah 9. He'll come in on a donkey. You've got that in your Bible. And John, look at the next verses. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow, you know, like a bow for war, shall be cut off and he shall speak 
peace to the nations. Get that. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Zechariah says... Israel, here's how your king's coming. He's not coming in power. He's coming on a donkey. He doesn't need a chariot, the chariot of Ephraim. He doesn't need the war horse of Jerusalem to demonstrate his power. He'll cut off the bow for war. He will come and he will speak peace. The donkey here representing as he comes in, he's coming in not to do physical war, but he's coming in peace. He's not coming in military power. He's coming in humility and will give his very life for us. That's what he says. He says, because of the blood of my covenant, I will set the prisoners free. He's not coming in with a spear, a shield, a sword to set captives physically free. By his blood in the covenant of giving his own life, he's coming to set everyone free who would believe in him, who would turn to him. He is not the kind of king they will expect. He comes in humbly because he knows that these people who are crying Hosanna in a few days will be crying crucify him. They will be calling for his head, so to speak, and wishing him dead very soon. His liberation is not from Roman rule. His liberation is from the power of sin, the power of the world, the power of the devil. He comes to release captives by giving his life. He's coming not with a show of military victory, but humility. He's not coming with fists in the air. He's coming with open hands that will be nailed to a cross as he gives his life for us. Here's his political strategy. Here's his political strategy. He will come as a sacrifice who will die, absorbing the wrath of God for our sins. He will come and die in our place as a sacrifice. And get this, here is his military strategy. After the third day, God will raise him from the dead. He will burst forth from the tomb, defeating the power of sin, defeating the power of death, not as a military king, but as the holy king of the universe who has come to defeat our greatest enemy. What is the greatest enemy of humanity? It is death and eternal judgment. And he's come to set us free as captives. And not only has he done that, but we find out later that he will ascend to the right hand of God, the Father, and rule for eternity. He will pour out his spirit on the church. He will give birth to the church and fill us with the spirit so that not only are our sins forgiven, but we're empowered to live for him in increasing ways. We're empowered to be his people, to grow in holiness, to be changed into the image of Christ. And we're empowered to tell this message that the king has come, that he's ruling and reigning, that he will forgive your sins and that you owe your worship and allegiance to him because he rules over all. And one day he will return. And when he's coming back, it's not in the humility of riding on a donkey. When he comes back, it's not to give his life, for he has paid for sins once and for all. When he comes back, Revelation shows him coming back in 
absolute dominating power, riding on a horse, defeating his enemies, those who rebelled against him and condemning them to an eternity apart from him and taking those who have believed, who have turned from sin and received his death and resurrection on our behalf to rule and reign in peace. He comes speaking peace to rule and reign in a new heavens and a new earth peaceably, gloriously, as a benevolent, loving ruler over his people. He will come back with absolute power to render everyone what they deserve, to bring absolute justice to those who oppose him, and to bring absolute mercy and grace to those who have received him. That day is coming, but that's not this day. This day he comes in as the humble servant king, who doesn't bring political liberation, but brings liberation from the power of sin and death. See, the people don't understand that, do they? I mean, they're all gathered here because he raised Lazarus. So if he can do that, he must be the guy we're waiting for, we're waiting on. They knew that he was the king of Israel. They call him that. Um, They knew he had power to free people, but they misunderstood. Really, kind of no one gets what's going on here. The disciples don't get it. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things. Didn't understand what? Why is Jesus on a donkey? That's what it means. That's the loose translation. Not really translation, but, you know, interpretation. Why is he coming in like this? Everybody is hailing him, freaking out, receiving him as king. This is what we've been waiting for. I mean, if you're the disciples, you've got to think, wow, after all the junk we've taken and all the criticisms and everything we've taken, now Jesus finally is getting his due, and he's riding on a donkey. It's not very dignified. They don't know what is going on. They don't have Zechariah in their mind until it says here, after his glorification, after he's resurrected, oh, we get it. That was in the Bible. <laughs> that was supposed to happen. The people waving the palm branches don't get it because they think he is a liberator nationally. They don't get it. Interestingly, the people who say the right thing, ironically, are his enemies, the Pharisees. The Pharisees say here that, look, verse 19, the world has gone after him. Now, they're making a desperate overstatement. Because they're losing. Jesus is gaining a crowd. Now, by the end of the week, in their mind, they're going to win. But Jesus is gaining a crowd, and it's like everybody's following him. When they say the world, they mean everybody in Jerusalem and around them. It's like a teenager saying, but mom, everybody is going to be there. I'll be the only one not there. Everyone. right? Did you say that as a teenager? Do you say that as a teenager? And it's just an overstatement. Is Bob going to be there? Well, no. He's, is John going to be there? Well, no, he's not going to be. Everybody's not going to be there then, are they? I heard that. I've said that. So uh, you understand that it's just everyone. is what They're saying everyone's going after Jesus. But what they say is ironically true. The world has gone after him. They mean everybody in Jerusalem. But in the gospel of John, the world means people who aren't just Jews, but Jew and Gentile alike. John 3.17 says this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus comes to save the world, Jews and Gentiles. And interestingly, the next verse in this passage, verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were Greeks, and they come and say, we wish to see Jesus. So the very next passage, we have non-Hebrews coming, fulfilling this very statement, coming to see Jesus. His rule and reign is well beyond just the Hebrews here. No one sees what's really happening until later. Well, that's what's going on, I think, at the, at the as best I understand it, 
at the triumphal entry. The humble king is coming. He's not what everybody expects, but he is going to bring liberation for all who would believe in him by his death and by his resurrection. How do we apply Palm Sunday today? How do we apply Palm Sunday? Here's, I got three ideas for you that, that I think apply here as we consider this passage, the Zechariah passage, and what we know is coming later in the week, a death and resurrection of Jesus. A couple things here, or three things rather. First of all, Jesus is sent for more than me and more than we. I never said that out loud to the first service, so I didn't realize how sort of cheeky and cheesy that sounded. I wasn't trying to be that way, but Jesus sent was sent for more than me and more than we. It, it, Jesus is reaching more than us is what I'm trying to say. Jesus' plans and his mission are so much bigger than me, are so much bigger than my family, are so much bigger than Grace Church, are so much bigger than the United States. God's plans are are so much bigger than people who are like me and think like me and have the same views I do. Jesus' plans and mission go way beyond us. So the Pharisees hit it on the head. The world's going after him. His mission is for a broad group of people. Here, they think he comes to the nation of Israel as a political revolutionary, but he really is coming for the nations. That's the purpose. His plan is beyond us. The king has come. He's died for the sins of his people. He's died for everyone who would believe in him. He's died and he's resurrected and he rules. And those who come under his rule and reign receive new life, regardless of your gender, regardless of your race, your nationality, your age, your socioeconomic status. God brings the gospel to everyone, and it's a saving, powerful gospel to anyone who will believe. Jesus will never turn anyone away who comes to him. And if we come to him, we can receive new life, and we're under his reign, and then we're empowered to go tell this reign, tell of his reign to others. Jesus, in their view, Jesus has come to bring, it's very narrow, Jesus has come to bring us political liberation ultimately. Now, it may spread beyond that, but their, their ultimate thought is we're to be free from Roman rule. Wave the national flag. Call him king of Israel. He is king of Israel, but he's king of all. He's king of kings. That's his mission. King of kings, ruler of all. And so we are sent people. We're to live as a sent people to announce his king. His kingdom, his rule, his reign, his grace. He forgives people. He draws people to himself. And so each of us is sent with this message. Jesus didn't just come for me. He came for people that are very different than me, that, that I work with. I'm saying that hypothetically. I actually work with Christians, but uh, a couple of them are a little different. But that's not really what I meant. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? When you are work, you you are encountering people in the marketplace that are very different than you. You have some neighbors that maybe think totally and act totally differently. You have some family members that you're thinking, I can't even believe we're kind of family that are very different. And Jesus didn't just come for you. He came for them. He didn't just come for me. He came for people that are very, very different. People that we look at and say, wow, they're really, really bad. And people that we look at and say, wow, they seem really good, but in their self-righteousness and their morality, they're completely offensive to God because they don't see their need for a Savior. So whether it's super clean-cut moral people or whether it's just people who are the quote-unquote viewed as the dregs of society, these are the kinds of people that Jesus has come for.
He wants to expand our expectations, our comfort zone, what we think he should be doing. See, the problem is here, people have assigned something to Jesus, and his plans are much broader than their assignment. And that applies to me. It's the person that I think is least likely to respond that's very likely to respond because of the power of God. God's called us, he sent us to individually reach those in our world and to mobilize together. This last week we had Backyard Bible Clubs. And uh, so grateful for everyone who participated, so grateful for Chris Tryon who led that and organized that and pulled that together so that groups of people in our church could partner together, organize together for the purpose of getting in a backyard and drawing kids, hopefully that don't know the Lord, and telling them the gospel telling them the good news of Jesus Christ. That is, that is, that's what Jesus came for. He came to reach the least, those who we may not have been thinking about, a neighborhood kid that doesn't know Jesus. God brings us together and organizes us together to make a plan and to work and for a team to raise money and prepare and pray and get on an airplane to Africa, to, in our case here, Zambia or Namibia, to be sent to reach folks with the gospel. A short period of time, to be sure, but to use that small window of time to be able to serve and care, to be to represent the Father's love to an orphan, to communicate to an orphan that someone would get on a plane and come all the way across the world to tell them that God the Father loves them and that we do too, and we want to communicate that love in Zambia or Namibia, or to reach out to a kid in a high school in Namibia and say, this is the Jesus who is alive and well and ruling and reigning. God is sending all of us to announce, whether it's the cubicle next door, the house next door, our relative, God is sending us to announce the servant king has come, and he's died and been raised and rules and reigns. Jesus is sent for more than me and more than we. Number two, Jesus is sent to do God's will and not mine. I think what happens in this passage, how do you explain people crying out, the chosen one is here, he's raising the dead. How do you explain people saying, Hosanna, you're the king, to crucify him in a few days? How do you explain that? How how do you make that kind of turn? Well, you make that kind of turn because Jesus didn't do what you wanted him to do. That's the reality, is that there's an expectation here of Jesus, that he doesn't do what they want. God sends Jesus to do God's will and not mine. One of the most basic truths of Scripture that is forgotten in the reality of my own heart so frequently is this, and I've heard this quoted, you know, there is a God and you are not him. I mean, I just need to be reminded of that regularly. Because it's very easy to slip into a posture that God is here to fulfill my purposes. God is here to do what I want God to do. God is here to save and to act and to rule and to reign in the way that I script him to do. And when he gets out of the script, when he doesn't perform as I require, then I'm tempted or even past temptation and act, and I charge him. I charge him. And I think the people here charged him. They're welcoming him now because they think they're going to be free, but when they find out that's not going to happen, they turn on him. 
and they want him killed because he wasn't the kind of Jesus that they want. Now, when we think about this, you know, it can seem like, well, the bad news is God isn't going to do what I want him to do sometimes. But the good news is God is going to do something much better than I want him to do. I mean, let me ask you this. What's better? What's better? For him to come in militarily and at this particular time in this season of history free some a group of people from Roman rule? Is that better? Or is it better for God in the flesh to come and give his life in our place to die for our sins and then to be resurrected to defeat the power of sin and to rule and reign and build a church of every tongue, every tribe, every people, including those in Israel here who would believe and every Gentile who would believe and to save a broad group of people to begin a revolution that's not just militarily of one small country in the Middle East, but that is international, a revolution of people turning to Jesus and being under his rule and his reign, even where political structures are oppressive. And God is opposed to unjust um, political structures where people are slaughtered, enslaved, where genocides happen, where people are treated unfairly. God is absolutely opposed to that and will bring justice to all of that one day. He will bring justice in his return. But today he is, he is bringing forgiveness and a rule and a reign so that Ultimately, there is no enslavement that can actually happen. Someone can be enslaved physically, but they can be free in their soul and free in their heart with the hope of heaven because of what Jesus has done. He has done something infinitely greater than what these people wanted. What they wanted ultimately happened. God will bring justice to political systems. But what he brought is ultimately greater which is the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life and the sure promise of eternal life. See, those who say welcome him as king on his terms, that means we trade our plans for his plans. We trade our plans for him. That's a great trade. That's a great trade. And so it means that when I'm praying for things and desiring things, even if they're righteous things, and this is a good desire. We don't want to be under Roman rule. That's a good desire. But even if they're good things, I still hold them and say, Lord, whether you act in the way I choose or not, not my will, but your will be done. You know, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's how we're taught to pray. Why? Because he's king and we're not. And secondly, his will is so much better than anything I want. And one day in this life, I don't expect we'll have answers to all that happens. I don't think we have answers. But one day I believe in eternity we'll be able to look back and see the hand of a faithful God. We sang it today, faithful God, caring for us, providing for us. So what happens in this passage? Well, Jesus comes not just for me and not just for us, but his plans are far more global than anyone knew at this time or that we know. It's broad. Secondly, that, uh, that God comes, Jesus is sent not to do our will, but God's will. And lastly, this, Jesus is sent to conquer by death and resurrection to bring peace. This is where I was so affected by that Ze- Zechariah passage, is that he comes in on a donkey, and he comes in not with chariots or, or war horses or bows, because he comes in to announce peace. That's, he's, he's coming in and he's not ready to do battle with Romans because he's announcing a peace that we can have peace with God and that we can have peace with one another because of his death 
and his resurrection. He comes to bring, he comes on a donkey because he comes humbly bearing the message of peace and bearing the very act, his death, that will bring peace, that will join, reconcile us to the God, us to God and make reconciliation with one another possible. I think this is a good word for us that Jesus is the King of peace. That's a good word for us in Sovereign Grace Ministries today. We need Jesus, the King of peace, to reign in our midst. That's a good word for those of us who have challenged marriages today. You need Jesus, I need Jesus, we need Jesus, the King of peace, to reign in our marriages where there is division and conflict and hurt and separation between husband and wife. We need the king of peace. Some of us have broken friendships. And we need the king of peace to come in and demonstrate his presence and his power and his reconciling work. Some of us are estranged from family members in here today. We have family members that we are, we are at odds with. And we need the king of peace. We don't need a new technique and a new approach. We need God Almighty to come with his presence and with his power, to come in as he does here with his gentleness and his grace and his mercy and his conviction to enable us to, as far as is possible with us, be at peace with everyone. It can't be as possible for anybody else, but as far as possible with me. We need that. Some of us have work relationships that are in real trouble there's division there's workplace conflict and and you think it's just my boss or it's just my coworker what it really is is it's an opportunity for the king of peace to reveal himself to you in the midst of a conflict and to bring you together or at least to enable you to do what's possible on your part to be reconciled that he might be glorified some of us in the room may be in legal wranglings i mean you are in or you're headed to a civil court of law because there is conflict and you need the king of peace to come some of us have disputes with our neighbors that are unreconciled and unresolved we need the king of peace to reign in our midst this is the picture this is what zechariah says he comes this way to bring peace because he takes great violence upon himself that he can reconcile people to God so that we're not under wrath, but we're under mercy. And he could reconcile people to one another so that we could be brothers and sisters in Christ. And even where we're not at peace with unbelievers, we can at least represent Christ to them. I think that's application here to view, unlike the crowd largely, to view Jesus as coming for more than us with a mission that extends beyond us, to view Jesus as coming to do God's will and not mine, and to view Jesus as the one, as Zechariah says, who comes to proclaim peace to the nations, whether that's peace to my neighbor or peace to someone that folks in our church will meet in Namibia or Zambia. It's to declare peace. It's a wonderful picture of Jesus here in the triumphal entry. It's a misunderstood. It's people who don't get him and who put something on him. But graciously, he extends mercy and forgiveness and grace to all who will come to him on his terms, receiving what he has done for us. May the King of the Nations, 
May the King who does the will of God, may the King of peace, be real to us today. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.